We've titled this post-Advent Christmas series just simply with the word Epiphany. Epiphany is the celebration of the revelation of Jesus Christ as light to the whole world. And in this time, in these weeks, uh, we're starting with the, the story of, of Jesus' baptism and, and ending with the story of the transfiguration of the Lord. And, and looking at selected passages in Matthew that, that speak about the implications of this revelation of God's love to us in Jesus Christ, his teaching, his exaltation at the transfiguration, his uh, humility at submitting to a, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so today we're looking at the story that is immediately after the baptism. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit proclaims, the voice of the Father says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately Jesus leaves for this 40-day sojourn in the wilderness. And in many ways, it is a testing of that identity that proclamation of his identity as the beloved son with whom God is well pleased. What is tested in the wilderness is whether or not Jesus himself can believe that that proclamation is true and at the, at the heart of who he is and, and what he has to do. Will Jesus remain faithful to and, and trust in this God-given identity? And so we want to look at Matthew 4, Verses 1 through 11 today. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Let's pray. Lord, you have entered into all of our experience, and your integrity is clear even in light of that challenge. So help us, dear Jesus, to draw our encouragement from you, to follow you, to come and see what you are wanting to show us. For we pray in your name. Amen. Hopefully by now you know that I love the quote from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 that talks about the church, about drawing near, about that, especially that part of the, the church that is about encouraging one another and stirring up one another to love and good works. And 
What that's about largely is, in a sense, almost holding one another accountable to who God says we are. And that we are indeed the, the beloved children of God and therefore called to faithfulness, uh, faithfulness to our relationship with God, but also faithfulness to one another uh, as, as Jesus talks about loving one another in the passage that I read at the outset uh, this morning. It's a powerful experience to receive this gift from the church because it can in some ways uh, disturb us because it shakes us awake to how we're moving maybe on a wrong path and and suddenly we get encouraged by one of our brothers or sisters and and we get stirred up to getting back on the path that that jesus is inviting us on and we get stirred up to love and good works well i have my own set of experiences as we all do of of this happening of being stirred up to love and good works. And the one that I want to tell you about today happened to me when I was working at University Presbyterian Church. All of the pastors there were given assigned parking places because in the, the U District, that's an important tool for ministry to actually have a place to park where you work. And so we had these great parking places. We all felt so important, you know, with our names on the parking places in the underground garage. Eventually they were taken away from us, but, uh, yeah, you know, I was there for 17 years. So it, it, uh, I went through several different permutations of policy. But my particular parking place had a companion on the, the right side of the vehicle, which was a, the concrete reinforcement pillar. For some reason, that pillar loved moving over and snatching off our side view mirror. <laughs> we tried to negotiate with it to say, please don't move over and rip off our side view mirror, but it happened more than once. And Marianne and I were both culprits in that time or the ones who experienced this affront uh, on the part of the pillar. and. And one time in particular where uh, it was not the first time for Marianne, she backed out and the, the side view mirror was ripped off and she was mortified by that experience. She was worried about my reaction with good reason. And, um, <laughs> and, and there happened to be a woman who was down in the garage who was also leaving the church at that point. And, she came back up to me and I happened to be preaching that day, which was a rare experience there because it only happened a couple of times a year. Uh, but I was preaching that day and before the third service, she came up to me and she said, hey, I just met your wife in the garage. And I said, oh, really? Yeah, she said, yeah, she seems really nice. I said, yeah, she's great. And she says, well, she just had an accident and ripped the side view mirror off your car. <laughs> And I don't know whether, you know, like in those cartoon characters where the, you see the temperature go up uh, <laughs> and the red coming over the face. I don't know whether that happened, but, and this woman saw that reaction, but I thought I was playing it pretty cool. And she said, um, you know, she was upset. And I just told her, I said, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. He's a really cool guy. He is not going to get mad about this. Well, I wasn't going to get mad about it after that. <laughs> because there was a sense there of, I believe in you and I believe you know who you are. That was the affirming part of it. There was another sense of that, which was, watch it, buddy. Here's your chance to live up to what you believe. And, and it actually went pretty well because of this 
the faithfulness of this saint who didn't, I think, have the slightest idea that she was participating in stirring me up to love and good works. <laughs> but she definitely did that, and I was most grateful to her for it. The challenge to be who God names us is really the challenge that we are all dealing with every single day, to live into that God-given name, to live into that name that we say we profess to believe is ours, but which daily gets challenged by our circumstances uh, just of living in this world. The temptation narrative of Jesus is really Jesus' challenge to ask the question, will I live into what was proclaimed at my baptism or not? Will I, as the beloved son in whom the father takes pleasure, choose to be faithful to my relationship with my father or not? That's what the temptation narrative is about. And there are those three elements of it. And let me just kind of give a little synopsis of those three elements. The first temptation is, is go ahead, Jesus, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. He's had 40 days of not eating. He's famished, lonely, empty. He's suffering. Hunger is a disorienting experience. And what he hears in the midst of that hunger is, if God loves you, why is this going on? Surely, if you are the beloved son in whom he takes pleasure, he doesn't want you to suffer like this. You need bread to survive, so use your divine power to attend to your human needs. To hell with this entering into all of the human experience, literally to hell with this <laughs> entering into all of human suffering. What the tempter is introducing here is a seed of doubt. Your father seems a bit of a sadist to me. So just turn some of these stones to bread and get beyond your suffering. And Jesus responds, we know. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's something bigger than my hunger here, and I'll choose to listen to that bigger truth. I will not compromise my relationship with the Father to immediately address my own discomfort, for there is a bigger mission at play here. And then comes the next temptation. And it's essentially the temptation that the tempter gives to Jesus. And the word in Hebrew, ha-satan, Satan, means the adversary, by the way. It's not necessarily a personal being in, in some of its uses in the Old Testament. It's, it is that sense of, a, of an ultimate adversary who invites us to believe a lie rather than the truth. But the devil, Satan, the tempter, essentially says in the second temptation, let's Test out this love that the Father supposedly has for you. Let's see how faithful your Father is to his word. 
And the devil gets it at this point that the best way to get to this guy is quote his book, quote scripture. And he quotes the passage in the Psalms about, or wherever it is, I think it's in the Psalms, that the, you know, that God will watch over his servant and will not allow his, his foot to be dashed to a stone. He, he won't fall down, in other words. So the devil quotes that scripture. And, you know, that's the way is that my preaching professor used to say, give me five minutes or 10 minutes in a Bible and I'll prove any heresy you want me to prove. And the way you do that is you just rip it bleedingly from its context and throw it out as some sort of precious promise without seeing the bigger picture. And essentially what the tempter is saying is, is let's test out God's proclamation about your belovedness and the pleasure that he takes in you. Just throw yourself down here and let's test out this passage to see if it works. And Jesus' response is, I choose to trust. I choose to wed your text with another text, which is you will not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally comes the, the third temptation. Do you want to get something done in this world or not, Jesus? Look at all the kingdoms of this world. They, they could all be yours. You could be the ruler of all of these human kingdoms. You could marshal all of this human power for your purposes. You could get things done a lot quicker than you're going to get them done and not have to go through what you're going to go through. Your kingdom is something that may not ever come about. It doesn't look very promising to me. So let's just combine all the powers of human kingdoms and we'll get this all accomplished faster. And all you need to do is make me your partner. If you're the Messiah, the King, the Christ, then act like a king and subdue all the nations. Win, Jesus, and win in the way that humans win. And Jesus comes back and says, you know, there's only one God. And I will not replace this God with the likes of you. The compromise in your deal is actually a deal breaker. So essentially what the temptation narrative is in, in the Gospels, as, as it's reported to us, is it's three invitations on the part of the tempter to Jesus, for Jesus not to be faithful to his God-given name. And yet he makes three choices to remain faithful. And I think this gives us an opportunity to, to think about what sin is in, in the big definition of sin. Because it's a word in this temptation narrative and and in two other passages that we, well, actually one other passage that we've looked at already, but it's a word about sin that helps us to see what the stem cell of, of all sin actually is. There's a passage in, in Romans 1 where Paul defines sin as the, the process of, of exchanging the truth about God for the lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And then there are those lines in Genesis 3 that, that Linda 
read earlier to us that are sort of an illustration of, of Paul's definition, an illustration of the seed of doubt that, that the adversary plants uh, for the woman and the man in, in the garden. And it starts with a question. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Is God so stingy that he puts you in this lovely place and tells you, no, no, don't touch? Is that what's going on here? And, and Eve says, no, that's not what's going on here. There's something else going on here. And, and then the adversary says, yeah, yeah, he just doesn't want you to know very much. And they both choose to believe that. What the adversary does is plant a seed of doubt and hope that it will germinate. And the basic seed of doubt is, is that God is not for you. There is still condemnation coming from God. So watch out. The temptation, the trial that we all face is to believe the lie that God is not for us. That God is somehow narcissistic, interested in only himself, and stingy, not real generous with what he's created, rather than gracious and loving and kind. It's sort of letting adversity or complexity rob us of the truth and begin to believe that things will only be okay if we take it all on ourselves and act as if God is not a part of life's equation. To worship and serve the creature rather than the creator is to make a profound error. For it is to remove ourselves from the big picture and be dependent only on the very small picture that we paint for ourselves. So herein lies what the writer of Hebrews is actually talking about when he says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. He too had to ask, is it worth it? Am I really God's beloved child? Did God make me for relationship with himself? Is there really nothing that can separate me from his love? These are questions that daily present themselves to each of us. And they come especially as we face the world's troubles that Jesus promises us, we will engage. But God does not tire of reminding us of the truth when we contemplate adopting the lie. Reminding us that we are not just slaves, as Jesus says in John 12. Or reminding us that we are not slaves, but friends called to follow and be faithful and to love as we have been loved. For that love will not be overthrown, and that love will sustain us forever. Let's pray.
Help us to rest in the truth, O God, that you have called us friends. That while slaves do not know what their master is thinking, you have let us in on the truth that we are on your heart and mind. So help us to rest in that and so find the energy we need to persevere in spite of the trouble. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.